Trust me, I'm like a smart person. I'm Sananda Cray, and from The Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast where we ask academic experts to surprise, delight and inform us with their research. With same-sex marriage dominating the headlines in recent months, you'd think this was the first time we'd ever talked about changing the way we do marriage in Australia. But in fact, marriage has always been a battleground for social change. It's often a proxy to some of the broader challenges to tradition that are bubbling away under the surface. Think of laws allowing no-fault divorce, bitterly fought at the time, or how attitudes to interracial marriage have shifted over the years. But there's one marriage taboo that, though it's rarely discussed these days, looms large in Australia's history. The marriage of a Catholic to a Protestant. Dr Siobhan McHugh, journalism academic and oral historian from the University of Wollongong, has captured some of these experiences in her research. In those days, you were either public or a Catholic. Catholics wore brown shoes to school and the publics wore black. When Catholics and Protestants married across the divide, their children were caught between two worlds. I'd often get spat on as I came home and that Catholic dog, Catholic, Catholic dog, dog thing. sitting on a log, eating maggots out of a frog. Seemed to dominate his life, trying to knock the Catholicism out of us. It was a dreadful paranoia. A lot of it was about religious practice, but a lot of it was having the ascendancy and it gave them an instant class to look down on. We were second-class citizens. Well, I do believe my mother is anti-Catholic. When you told her that we were expecting a baby, she said, oh, no. These days, when Australians of Irish Catholic descent have occupied the highest positions in the land, it might seem hollow to talk of them as marginalised. But right up to the 1970s, the Catholic-Protestant divide was deeply entrenched. We'll hear more of those oral histories in a minute. But first, I wanted to ask Siobhan McHugh what drove her to unearth these stories. So I met her at her home, and sitting around the kitchen table, I started by asking her why there was such antipathy between Catholics and Protestants in the past. Well, I think what was interesting for me was that it wasn't about religion. It was much more about the political identity that was associated with Catholic and with Protestant. And this was a complete surprise to me. I came here as an immigrant in 1985, and I felt very Irish, but not at all Catholic. In fact, I really loathed the way that the Catholic Church more or less ran Ireland at the time, and I used to describe myself as a refugee from the Catholic Church in Ireland. But of course, like, like a lot of people, I was culturally Catholic. I couldn't escape it. And when I came here, I found that I could not be Irish without being Catholic. The two were conflated in the public mind. And then when I got into the history, this all went back to the fact that, of course, being Irish, we had a long 700-year colonial history with uh, England. And that had become replicated out here. The antagonisms between the Irish and the English over 700 years had been transplanted more or less out to Australia. But the shorthand now was that Irish was Catholic and English was Protestant or establishment. I mean, it was much more complex, but that was kind of the way it played out. And how and when did it die out? Well, it began to die out from the 70s, mainly because... The new Australians, or as they were more colloquially called, the bloody wogs, came in in the 50s and 60s 
in that huge wave of post-World War II immigration. And so there were other kind of kicking dogs and people who were uh, a bit more other, at least the Irish spoke English and they didn't have habits that people found very strange, like eating garlic. And, you know, I mean, these are the kind of things that people used to put down the new Australians for. So the Irish kind of got booted upstairs just because other people were unfortunate enough to be below them for a while. But until 1949, I was really surprised when I saw an actual census that had 89.9. In other words, 90% of Australians were of either British or Irish origin up to that point. So there was no, you know, there were smatterings, 2 or 3% obviously of indigenous people had always been here, but there were smatterings of early Yugoslavs, Chinese, other races, but 90% were either British or Irish. And that's why the polarisation was so intense. Part of this story is about, you know, marrying across a divide of some kind. Do you have any any sort of part of that in your family history or any experience, any personal sort of experiences there? Or have you heard of that happening with friends or relatives? Well, actually, not really. Um, I had an, an aunt who married a Protestant up in Northern Ireland. I mean, I come from the south of Ireland where in my time... 95% of Ireland was Catholic. More or less everybody was Catholic, whether you were religiously Catholic or not, you were Catholic. I mean, I remember still, I used to point out to my children when we went to Dublin, the place where we beat the Protestants 22 nil in hockey. <laughs> this was a resounding victory. This was atoning for generations of oppression, you know. And I had scored six goals, even though I wasn't even a forward. And I took intense pleasure in this. <laughs> But Protestants were kind of, um, uh, they were sort of remnants of the Anglo-Irish ascendancy. These, this is in the South, and they were kind of fading gentry, uh, people who lived in the big house. But then there were, there were the nasty things going on up in the north of Ireland between um, the Presbyterian Protestants and the Catholics, which of course was really a matter of civil rights and discrimination and a form of apartheid. But we were kind of not really involved in that down south. And what are we going to hear in this short package you've put together? You're going to hear amazing stories of ordinary Australians on both sides, Catholics and Protestants, talking about either how they fell in love and, and started sleeping with the enemy virtually and how that attracted all kinds of opprobrium from family and, and sometimes cut them off from their family for generations and also from the children who were born into those kind of mixed marriages, that's what they used to call it. And the language was extraordinary. The church was so condemnatory, the Catholic church in those days, especially pre-Vatican II. It used to call, like if you married a Protestant, you would be asked, what was the name of the heretical minister? And uh, in the only way that you could be received back into the church was a convalidation ceremony where you would have to uh, announce whether you had married the Protestant in the Protestant place out of either ignorance or malice. They were the only choices available to you. They were all on the certificates I found. Actually, a priest gave me all these documents because um, he had them still after 50 years. So you're going to hear personal stories, some of them heartbreaking, really, really sad some of them really funny. I mean, there's one man, Harry Griffiths, who's quite well known as a broadcaster. He only died quite recently. And he has a great story on the tape, but one that he didn't put on the tape that I've got here. Uh, he asked his father, you know, why did you grow up in the Church of Christ? Why did you pick that religion? And his father said, well, 
because they did the best picnics. <laughs> so it wasn't always heavy kind of colonial meaning that that was um, vested in, in the choice of, of religion. A very typical thing that happened in his family, the boys were brought up Protestant and the girls were brought up Catholic. So they had a bet each way. And he told, Harry used to tell a funny story about his sister who came home from the nuns newly uh, immersed in her Catholicism and announced that she could not eat uh, meat on Friday because they could only eat fish on Friday, as was the rule till the 60s. Whereupon the father, who's Protestant, says, right, that's fine. You can have tinned tuna and me and Harry, we're having lamb chops. We'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> we start this story with Gay Wilson. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Gay Wilson grew up in a mixed marriage in New Morala, near the Snowy Mountains. And her, her father was Catholic and mother was a Methodist. And she was raised Catholic, which was the thing. The Catholic Church always tried to get the parents to agree to raise the children Catholic. And she went on herself then to have a mixed marriage, and she married a a Protestant, but their marriage was very happy. Basically, her um, mother's side was very hostile to the mixed marriage of Gay's parents, as she recounts here. My mother came from a strict Methodist family, and they were absolutely horrified to think that she was marrying a Catholic because of people's perception of Catholicism in those days. They weren't very enamoured of it. When my mother died, her brother sent me a sympathy card and all he wrote on it was, Dear Gay, there's one thing I remember about your mother. She married a Catholic. And I thought, I'll never speak to you again. I ripped up the card. I thought, how dare he say that to me in my grief? You'd see it in ads, you know, Catholics need not apply. I never saw it in print that Protestants need not apply. They were very Presbyterian, very conservative, and they hated Catholics. And so we weren't um, accepted within by my grandmother, particularly. She was more vocal about it. As soon as you walked in on the piano, there were photos of all the family and their weddings, and and there was a photo of our parents' wedding, but our mother was cut out of it, just sort of shredded out of it, and that that set the tone for us. We sort of didn't feel very welcome. A lot of this I had forgotten over the years, and it was only when I looked at it again that some of it came back to me. Dear Mr and Mrs Ambrose, As you know, John and I have been going out together for almost two years now. It didn't take us long to realise we loved each other, but the fact foremost in our minds, and I'm going to cry now, only because he's died recently, (laughs) was our different religions. Firmly I believe and truly God Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Hast thou bound amongst the saints? Uh, I'm not very happy about him marrying a Catholic. I'm a man duppy didn't seem to mind so long as uh, they got married in a Catholic church. But the first surprise came when my mother told him that because he was a Protestant, he couldn't be married in front of the altar. Had to be married around the side of the altar. So before the church ceremony, my father went round and saw the priest, 
gave me five quid and said, make this as fast as possible. Get it over and done with quick. So that's what he did. He said it was the fastest wedding they'd ever seen. The nuns used to tell us if you weren't a Catholic, you wouldn't go to heaven when you died. I piped up, I think I was only in first class, and I said, but my mother's not a Catholic. And she said, well, she'll go to hell when she died. I must have really got very cranky because I was put outside the door. And I went home and I told mum. She said, God decides that. And I went back the next day and I told Sister Saline, God decides. What was your father's occupation? He was a manager of a New South Wales authority called the Egg Marketing Board. Do you think that the Egg Marketing Board was a Protestant enclave? Yes, I do. The senior positions there would almost invariably be filled irrespective of merit by Protestant people. Yes, I always was under the impression that one of the big reasons is that he didn't want people at work to know that you were marrying a Catholic. Mm. It was a stigma to have a Catholic in the family. It was just that my father was very much an empire man. Everything that came out of Great Britain, including, I presume, the Church of England, was to be admired. And you were somehow letting the family lineage down and history down if you changed that through bringing up children as Catholics. Neither of my parents attended. None of my family attended the wedding. My brothers, my sisters, my parents, uncles, aunts, grandfather. But how did your father make his views known to you personally? Um, if I married Helen, I would be disinherited. arranged we all went out to dinner together wouldn't this be a lovely bonding thing well you can't take somebody who's had no contact with their mother's family for 30 or 40 years and then take you all out to dinner and expect that we would all be hunky-dory I said you have to forgive me but I'm antagonistic towards my mother's family did you ever care that my father was in such dire situation that he had to put his children into an orphanage he described that Sorry. God, was this ridiculous? I'm 65. <laughs> but he always described that as being the most terrible, terrible time of his life. He said it was bad enough when his wife died, but to have to put his two children in an orphanage. Hail, Queen of Heaven, the ocean star, guide of the wanderer here. I didn't know anyone who wasn't Catholic until probably I left school. So it must have been weird for you knowing your mother was a Protestant. Yeah, it was. And I remember coming back from the shops once and the nuns had told us that Protestants worshipped the Queen and that Protestants thought that the Queen was God. And this somehow got mixed into the fact that my father was a real fervent Irish Republican. 
So the British royal family was bad and English people were bad and the Protestants worshipped the Queen. Thought the Queen they thought the Queen was God and we were all like, oh. I remember coming back from the shops and sneaking my head in. I was terrified. I remember my heart was racing. It would have been about 10 or under. Sneaking up the steps and looking inside the Baptist church at the end of my street and looking in and there was a big picture of the Queen on the wall. So I knew it was true. Some of the 50 oral history interviews recorded by Dr Siobhan McHugh, Senior Lecturer in Journalism at the University of Wollongong, on the vexed topic of mixed marriages between Catholics and Protestants in earlier days. Siobhan's Mixed Marriage and Sectarianism Oral History Collection is fully indexed and available online at the National Library of Australia if you want to listen to these interviews in full. You can also find her award-winning ABC documentaries Marrying Out online, along with some additional published research. We'll put the links on our website. And the music in that segment was composed and performed by Thomas Fitzgerald, with vocals by Kavisha Mazella. Just a heads up about a new podcast we've launched over at The Conversation UK called In-Depth Out Loud. In our first episode, Michael Parker reads a story by Colin Alexander at Nottingham Trent University about the cult of the Kim family in North Korea and its similarities with the adoration of another communist leader, Joseph Stalin. Here's a taster. Stalin at least permitted the display of other images and had a team of prominent politicians around him who enjoyed some independence of action. The incumbent Kim appears to be the only decision maker and images of him and his forefathers are almost the only public images. And whereas Stalin commissioned statues of himself in iron, concrete and bronze, many of the statues of the Kims are gold. That's in-depth, out loud. Check it out on The Conversation UK or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is out at the start of every month. Our theme beats are by Uncle Ho and we've used other music in this episode from Free Music Archive. We'll put the links on our website. And in our January episode, we'll be reflecting on what the science says about the silly season. You know, all that indulgence that you partake in over December and January. Here's Hassan Valley, an expert on risk, talking about how a little-known concept of a micro-life might inspire you to put some of your New Year's resolutions into action. A micro-life is a unit of measure that tries to capture how much your lifespan is either increased or decreased as a result of a particular activity. A micro-life is equivalent to a 30-minute unit of life. By smoking a packet of cigarettes a day, you're taking five hours off your lifespan each particular day that you perform that activity. Just watching television on your couch every 60 minutes that you do that takes off a half a micro-life. So that costs you 15 minutes of your lifespan. Oh, my God. I knew I shouldn't have watched so much Game of Thrones. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on Pocket Casts. And listen to us online at theconversation.com.